Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy tells us that a man must walk down 42 rogues to be called a man, but that seems like a lot of work for a rather modest reward. The National Space Society tells us there are only 31 milestones to hit to become an interplanetary species. Becoming an interplanetary species, and eventually an interstellar one, is not something that is going to happen overnight. Indeed, even discussing it isn't going to take just one episode, so we'll be doing more than one starting today with our opening moves. It is important to realize though that this won't happen overnight. Even if we get cheap space travel tomorrow it will be centuries before more than a small fraction of our population lives off Earth. I thought today we'd look at some of the critical steps we'd expect to need to make along the way, and what it might look like as we head out to space and make it our home. We'll be borrowing a fair amount from the National Space Society's Roadmap to the Stars, the most recent edition of which I've linked in the episode description. The roadmap has 31 milestones and is a concise but detailed and easy to understand look at the topic I'd encourage you to explore. Today we'll be looking at the first 12 milestones. We'll also be referencing many of our prior episodes, particularly the Upward Bound series and Outward Bound series, which have tend to focus on specific topics like devices for getting into orbit or how we colonize a specific planet. You can see those episodes for specifics, and I'll mention them and put them up on the screen as we go. As something of a side note, as usual I'm writing this episode sometime before it will air, and in this case at the end of May when I was originally going to be down in Dallas at the International Space Development Conference giving a talk and accepting an award from the NSS, which had to be postponed for the virus, and at the same time we had a rather historic launch from SpaceX, the first private launch of humans into orbit. So it seemed a doubly appropriate time to be looking at this topic. If anything could be said to have dogged space exploration and settlement in recent decades, it is the seeming halt to it and the absence of private companies in it. We had the space race and the Apollo missions in the 60s and early 70s, landing folks on the moon six times, then 50 years of no one repeating that. There are a lot of folks who think it never happened and in some ways it's hard to mock them for that because the most obvious rebuttal is, if this was so easy we could do it six times 50 years ago, why haven't we done it since? And why hasn't anyone else? The rebuttal to that is basically that now any further manned missions to the moon wouldn't be worth the cost and risk, which for a lot of folks amounts to saying so it is basically a big worthless rock. For that not to be true, we need to be able to go back to the moon in a big and permanent and profitable way, and that requires a lot of groundwork which we'll examine today. Same, the space shuttle era came to an end and was often seen as far more expensive than it was originally expected to be or was worth. And even though the International Space Station has been running for a couple decades now, we have no hard plans for upgrade or replacement, and no countries frantically waving their hands asking to donate more money to it. 
Many liked the idea of humanity somehow doing away with money like on Star Trek and just exploring space for the advancement of science and the betterment of our species, but on the Earth, in the here and now, a good way to jumpstart our ascent into space is to make space profitable, so private companies are charging ahead trying to get involved. Eventually, hopefully, space will be the domain of not just big corporations but even small businesses and mom and pop operations. You're not an interplanetary species until most of your people and business is off-world. And that's why SpaceX tends to be so popular with a lot of us, because not only have they pushed orbital launch costs down quite a lot, the NSS's roadmap's Milestone 1, but also made a big step toward their Milestone 4, establishing in-space commerce by private companies. Milestones 1-4 to might be considered our baby steps, those are respectively lowering launch costs, having continuous occupancy of low Earth orbit, getting space tourism going, and establishing in-space private commerce. Those are continuous goals though, your first step but also something you keep pushing at and expanding. That first milestone, cheaper launches, is clearly needed, but there are many ways to address it and we looked at some of the more grandiose options in our Upward Bound series, Everything from reusable rockets to space elevators, skyhooks, mass drivers, orbital rings, launch loops, and more. Some, like reusable rockets, are approaches we're already using and improving, while others, like the space elevator, rely on our someday developing mass production of a material able to handle the huge material stresses a space elevator needs. But space elevators could work today with available materials in places with weaker gravity like the moon or smallest planets. So too, devices like mass drivers might be good for Earth, but definitely work great on low gravity, low or no atmosphere places like the Moon. Still other approaches like the orbital ring, while probably needing a lot of prototyping and offering some technical challenges, mostly aren't in use right now, not because they are hard to make, but because they are major investments and will only save us money when we have vastly more space traffic. It's like building a railroad across a continent saves tons of money but not until you've already gotten very developed, prior to that it makes more sense to use something smaller and self-contained. It's your freight train to orbit, not your wagon, and it's something we'd not expect to see until we had that major demand. Such things are not our focus for today as we look at early space development. These earlier milestones are mostly focused on the technical challenge of getting into space and the basic appeal to people and businesses to be up there. But they all are focused on low Earth orbit, a space just a few hundred kilometers overhead, not the few hundred thousand to the moon or a few hundred million to the asteroid belt or most other planets, let alone the many trillions of kilometers to even the nearest stars. One could argue these aren't even in space, that the various low Earth satellites and stations are just orbiting in our uppermost atmosphere, where the air thins out just enough not to drag the satellites down after a few hundred orbits. We would put almost all those low Earth objects even lower if we could, and I would not be surprised if we eventually did. Many of the scenarios for much cheaper orbital launch might permit spacecraft that didn't need to be refueled to maintain orbit by taking an air to use as propellant and using sunlight as a power supply for shooting that propellant back out. Fundamentally low orbit is not about getting into space, it's just getting out of Earth's atmosphere and the air drag cost to staying in it. Getting stations higher up is another milestone, but we use low orbit as a testing ground because there are some things we need to test out. How well people do in low gravity is one of them. We honestly have no idea what the health effects of low gravity are because only 12 men have ever experienced it, and that only for a few days on the moon. 
It might be that humans can live perfectly well in the moon's gravity and if not there may be Mars. Until we check that we don't know and the answer will matter a lot to our future in space. If the answer is no, that we can't live healthy for long times on places with low gravity, then we'll probably never terraform those places and never settle them beyond short-term workers and outposts, with everything else being done from orbit of a given body in rotating space habitats, and indeed probably a lot of the work being done by remote-controlled robots. Alternatively, we might be able to genetically or cybernetically alter people to live in those conditions anyway, though we might have to broaden the meaning of species to discuss humanity's future as an interplanetary species at that point. So one of our big things to test out in low orbit is low gravity, by creating rotating space stations with equivalent gravity to the Moon or Mars. The other thing to be worked out is sustainability. It is expensive to bring food and air and water in, so we need to make it and recycle it and not lose much in the process. If the launch costs were cheap enough, we could constantly resupply our offworld bases. On the other hand, if launch costs remain high, very good automation lets us circumvent that issue by launching just a handful of small robots to the moon to exploit it for resources. They build more of themselves and other manufacturing assets, either entirely automated or remote controlled from Earth. And we only bring up people, as many as we can, but if it got prohibitive we could always grow our presence in space the alternate way of colonizing, by having kids as opposed to mass immigration. That's likely to be the approach we'd have to take with interstellar travel regardless of whether we get cheap interplanetary travel or orbital launch. One of the more attractive looking options for getting private investment far from Earth is asteroid mining for precious metals, that often tends to conjure a Wild West image of prospectors on joy-rigged spaceships wandering lonely through rocks in the belt, avoiding pirates, claim jumpers, and taxmen. Right now, we've no clear system for permitting anyone, if they found a bunch of gold on some asteroid, to actually mine it and sell it back here. Right now, nobody has a way to stake a claim on a crater on the moon or Mars and build a domed farm or mining and refining operation there. Without those, without some way of ensuring they can keep what they invest and make, nobody is going to want to develop in space, but that raises the question of who is offering those assurances and guarantees. Who rules space? Two of the more obvious options are a United Earth Government, like the UN or something more sovereign, or no Earth rule at all, individual governments at this or that world with its own sovereign government. It tends to strike me as more likely that we probably only see new sovereign states appearing in space in three cases. First, that they've grown in number so much they rival terrestrial nations. Second, that they were so far away that being part of an Earth-based nation simply wasn't practical, like interstellar colonies or anything out in the Oort Cloud where even routine communications would take months or years. And third, where some powerful nation was essentially sponsoring them, as has happened often in history where some nation wanted to despite a rival by supporting the independence of some place they controlled, or didn't think they were in a good position to make a territorial claim on some place, but felt they could more easily sponsor them as a sovereign and friendly state. This last route seems the most likely to produce new nations in space first. Some outposts of tens of thousands currently beholden to this or that nation or parallel entity have started resenting their administration, and rival powers lean on that entity to let it be free to run its own affairs. I suspect you would foresee them obtaining subdivision status. In the US for instance we have the federal government, then beneath that the states and territories, and beneath that more subdivisions like counties, townships, cities, villages, and so on. 
A colony of 10,000 people is not going to be taken seriously as a new nation, partially because it just lacks the capacity to support a lot of critical government functions. While big organizations can often be rather slow and bureaucratic, they do tend to provide big advantages to their members. It's hard to have due process in a appeals court for instance in a nation of 10,000, when there's probably only a dozen lawyers, hard to have a university with lots of professors in wide range of specialties and so on. You could farm that out to others, like sign a treaty with a terrestrial nation to handle your high crimes and appeals, or send your students to and so on, or even be your big gun for diplomatic and military intervention when needed, and potentially not the same country for all these functions. And we'll explore these ideas more next month in future types of government. In the short term, you need legal and political protections for those going into space, and you probably need some sort of land grants or other economic incentives to encourage folks to head out there, Milestone 8. Once they are there, to be safer, to feel safer, and to operate cheaper, you need to improve your technologies for self-sufficiency, Milestone 9. This doesn't have to be total self-sufficiency of course, only interstellar colonies would need that, and even they could be relying on trade of information from back home, getting tech updates and so on. However, they do need to be self-sufficient in the sense of not running at a deficit. If a colony on this asteroid doesn't grow much food, then it needs to be able to produce something to trade for it and at a rate sufficient to get what they need. There is always a cost to trade so ideally they should be mostly self-sufficient, especially on food, air, water, and energy, the four things you need constantly to keep your colony running. Those are your big jugular weaknesses, and the degree of self-sufficiency is obviously a lot different for a space hotel in low orbit and a distant subsurface rotating habitat in a Kuiper Belt object far from the Sun. Fundamentally the same concept though, you need to make sure your total imports are less than or equal to your exports, and reliably so, which is often going to be minimizing what you need to import, and often maximizing the quantity and variety of things you can produce locally. That's a pretty big aspect of Milestone 10, which is multi-generational survival off Earth. If you're not stable, if you're essentially running in a deficit, you won't last, but more importantly, we're not even talking about humans here, we don't know how most animals will fare in terms of being born in low gravity, or inside relatively primitive artificial ecosystems. Some will likely handle it better than others, but in some cases we might need entirely artificial ecosystems of very large and diverse natures. During this early phase we can be sending folks off to Mars to explore, or off to the belt to find precious metals, or set up this or that trial method at fuel or food or air or water production, but anything truly grand up in space requires first tackling how we can establish reasonably closed ecosystems up there, and how humans themselves handle protracted periods in space, both physiologically and psychologically. Not just as adults, not just trained astronauts picked from the best of the best, but how you raise a kid there, how you keep them educated, fed, comforted, and employed, and also how you keep them safe. Milestone 11 is developing reliable defenses against asteroids hitting Earth. There are some near-term related concerns we'll have to address along the way. For instance, our atmosphere protects Earth from small meteors and space debris, but stations and ships will need their own protection from these common hazards of higher orbit. And whatever technologies we use to adjust asteroid trajectories away from Earth could also be used maliciously to send them to Earth or to other targets. With unpredictable humans as part of the landscape, space will need to be watched for hazards more closely. 
As we start in-space fabrication of larger structures, Milestone 12, this is a greater concern, more things to be hit, more things to shoot out debris to hit other things, more things potentially losing parts or trash in construction, maintenance, or operation, more places for rogue or malicious elements to hide out or exploit. But if we can conquer all of these issues, make it to these milestones, we still will be long short of becoming an interplanetary species, but the egg that is Earth will finally have hatched, and we can look onward to the moon and other planets and seeing a decent fraction of the human population begin moving into space, our mid-game, and we'll explore that more in the next episode. So what does a civilization at this point look like? At this stage we're probably not at the point where anyone can fly to space as easily as flying to another continent, or even necessarily to the point where it's parallel to first class accommodations on a luxury ocean cruise ship, but there would be folks working in space, and folks traveling there who were not either ultra-rich or government-funded astronauts. We would be expecting thousands of people to be going to space every year, possibly every week, and many for recreation or for jobs that had nothing directly to do with science. We would be seeing some legal framework being placed for nations, companies, and individuals to stake claims to territory off Earth or other limited resources like a band of orbital space around Earth they leased. And we would be seeing more and more of those daily needs of those in space, like air, water, and food, not to mention gravity, being supplied on site by recycling and limiting waste, with an eye toward local sustainability and self-sufficiency. We would be seeing the groundwork in place for detection and protection from asteroids, meteors, and artificial space debris getting set up along with the personnel and government apparatus for tending to that. We would be seeing the beginnings of orbital industry, production, and fabrication to build what we need for space, in space. That's the future we're reaching for in part one of our journey to becoming an interplanetary species, and it's a place we could reach within a couple generations of now, and which I believe most of us will live to see, the beginning of a bright and bold future out in space. Throughout today's episode we looked at the first 12 milestones on the roadmap, and some of those milestones are ones we've looked at in depth before, but one we've not done, in spite of many requests for it, was on asteroid defense, and it was long overdue and is out now on Nebula, where we'll discuss the realistic scenarios for asteroid impact and what technologies and approaches are on the table for dealing with it. Nebula, our subscription streaming service, was made as a way for education-focused independent creators to try out new content that might not work too well on YouTube, where algorithms might not be too kind to some topics, or demonetize certain ones entirely, or just doesn't fit our usual content. If you'd like to get free access, it does come as a free bonus with a subscription to CuriosityStream, which also has thousands of amazing documentaries you can watch, on top of the Nebula-exclusive content from myself like our Nebula-exclusive series, Coexistence with Aliens, and many other excellent works by creators like CGP Grey, Minute Physics, and Real Science. If you're a curious person, CuriosityStream is now just $14.99, a 26% discount, and it gets you access to thousands of documentaries, as well as complimentary access to Nebula, for as long as you're a subscriber and use the link in this episode's description. Last week we looked at some truly enormous space habitats we might build in our future as an alternative to settling new planets, and next week we'll take a look at how we can go about acquiring the vast amounts of raw materials we will need to construct millions of those continent-sized habitats, and ask if we should dismantle the solar system itself to provide them. 
After that we'll be back to the Fermi Paradox series to consider disappearing stars and cosmic voids, to consider if such things are natural or might be signs of older alien civilizations dismantling their own solar systems or even entire galaxies. If you want to lure us when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or our website IsaacArthur.net, which are linked in the episode description below along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.